As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder, as always, to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show, I am delighted to be joined by the Reverend Dr. Jennifer Woodruff-Tate, Managing Editor at Christian History Magazine. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Jennifer, I feel like there's so much to talk about, but I'm just going to hold up a, um, a copy of the magazine so people know what we're talking about. This is Christian History Magazine. But I guess before we talk about your career there, you've been the longest running editor of Christian History. What is the magazine? Uh, The magazine was begun, um, oh gosh, 40 years ago, 41 years ago now. Uh, Last year was our 40th anniversary uh, by a man named Ken Curtis, who was uh, evangelical Protestant in Pennsylvania in the United States. And Decided, and, and he had a video company, Vision Video, which still exists and is is in partnership with the magazine. And was he began to feel that Christians were not um, not aware of sort of like it was Jesus to now and nothing in between. Um, and he became uh, convicted with the idea that he ought to provide resources regarding um, not just modern day things, but also the whole scope, whole scope of church history and. So he did some videos, um, had uh, documentaries and, and movies that he began doing through Vision Video, and then he began publishing this magazine, Christian History, as a companion guide to the videos. Um, so the first couple of issues that came out, the very first one um, in 1982 was on a Count Zinzendorf, was because there was a Count Zinzendorf movie. And then, so he did a couple of these, and then um, he thought people responded so positively, he said, let's put this on a schedule and make it uh, quarterly. Uh, which it has been ever since. After after a couple of years where it was just like you know one or two issues, then it's it's been a quarterly. After twenty four issues, it got sort of too big for him to handle, and he sold it to Christianity Today International, and they published issues twenty five to ninety nine, um, which they still have the rights to uh, to use. And if you go to their website, you will find them. And then uh, it was 2008, and the stock market, the bottom fell out of the stock market, and Christianity Today International said, this is not making us any money. And written into the contract was this fine print that if Christianity Today ever ceased publishing it, the rights would revert uh, to Vision Video and the Curtises and, Christ- and Christian History Institute, which is the sort of overarching company. 
Uh, so, so they did. And uh, Ken Curtis was dying of cancer, and his son Bill, who is the the current head of of the organization, said, "Let's try to get one more. Let's try to get issue one hundred out before my dad dies." Which <laughs> um, it was on the four hundredth anniversary of the King James Bible, and it was very well received. Um, and uh, so then, after uh, after Doctor Curtis passed, his son said, "Well, let's keep let's keep going and see how far we get with this. You know, we have the rights; it's come back to us." Um, and this this. Uh, C.S. Lewis issue uh, that we may talk about is 141, and we've, I'm actually working right now on 147, uh, which is on everyday faith in the early church. So I came in shortly after it came back to Christian History Institute. I've been there 10 years, um, and we've published, uh, you know, over 40 issues since it returned to us. Jennifer, what does your role involve at Christian History? What is it that you do on a kind of regular basis? Yeah, well, the managing editor is sort of where all the trains stop. Um, you know, so I participate in sort of overall planning um, as along with uh, Bill Curtis, uh, who I talked about before, and uh, Chris uh, Armstrong, who is our senior editor. And they, you know, they were sort of the high level planning things. And then once we, but I participate in that with ideas for issues and in planning meetings for an individual issue. And once we've decided what we're doing for an individual issue, my job is to sort of make sure everything happens. So I prepare an issue plan. Uh, when everyone's happy with the issue plan, I ask authors to write articles. When the articles come in, I edit them. We have several other people that also edit. Uh, I meet with the art director and the art researcher, and we pick images. Uh, I approve all the layouts. I if they, if they it I write captions for all the pictures. If the uh, article doesn't quite fit, we do what's called copy fitting, where I, I sort of shave a little few words off here, a few words off there, make it fit. Um, and then when it goes through proofing, after it it's, you know goes to the proofreader and the other people that look at it, then I'm the final person that signs off on all of those changes. So it's really sort of the sort of oversight of every step of the process. And you have been a professor, a music director, a librarian, uh, I mean, many other things, and you're also a priest. How did you end up at Christian History Magazine, I mean, what an interesting career you've had. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it was it was really very strange. So uh, Chris Armstrong, whose name I just mentioned, was uh, the editor for um, a few years of Christianity Today, and at the very beginning when it came back to us at Christian History Institute, and uh, he also was a colleague of mine at Duke. So I was getting my PhD in church history at Duke. Um, I met my husband there. Um, I also met Chris there. He actually introduced me to my husband, so I owe both the job and the husband. <laughs> and uh, so Chris, uh, he knew that both Edwin, that's my husband, and I were, were writers. And so when he became um, editor of issue 78, which was on Tolkien, he, um, he, and he knew the Wheel of the Inklings, he asked us to write, uh, that was uh, 2003, so 20 years ago, he asked us to write for uh, that issue, which we did. And then off and on over the next... Uh, the next few issues, you know, we wrote for it. Um, then when when the magazine re- came back from Christianity Today to Christian History Institute, uh, that is a tongue twister, by the way, keeps having to say that. He asked me if I'd like to uh, to proofread, and I said, sure. And then I dis- I discovered that I'm actually a terrible proofreader. Uh, we have a really good <laughs> proofreader works for the magazine. And uh, so I was sort of like kind of involved, but proofing wasn't the best thing. And then Chris had, had several... Um, had edited several issues. He edited 100, 102, 101, 102, 103. And then he his job was changing, and he said, do you think that you could um, could step into, you know, would you be willing to step into this role? And I said, well, sure, we could try it out. 
<laughs> uh, that was 10 years ago. Um, and so then I came on board in the middle of uh, issue 104. And like I said, the, right now we are working on 147s. Wow. So you've not looked back since. Yeah. Now, what, what are some of the topics that you've covered in your time at the helm? Because it feels like you cover a kind of plethora of different topics. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think what specific ones. Because we try deliberately when we set up a year, like we don't want two issues about the same time period or the uh-huh. same, you know, like next to each other under normal circumstances. Sometimes it happens like for the um, 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we ended up with two Reformation issues in the same year. Uh, so it has it has deliberately been all over the place. Um, the first issue that was the one that I did start to finish uh, was on uh, Christianity and early in early Christianity in Africa, um, and the fact that so many of the people, like Augustine, for instance, you know, from North Africa, that so many uh, so much of the formation of the early church was actually in North Africa, you know, and what what it means to take that seriously um, and what faith was like. Um, so that was that was very interesting. Uh, some of the earlier ones we did, um, we did uh, we did one which was very difficult but ultimately very rewarding on Christian responses to Darwin. Uh, we we only went up to 1925. We didn't do anything after the Scopes trial, but we talked about when Darwin's books first came out, what the responses were, and how that developed. Uh, trying to go through my head, we did one on vocation throughout uh, church history, which was extremely interesting. Sometimes we do these topical issues. Yeah. Um, oh, what else? Uh, we've we did uh, we done. John Wesley, but we never done American Methodism. So we did uh, Ameri- we did Francis Asbury and American Methodism. Um, we did a whole series on, uh, which was sort of Chris Armstrong's idea on sort of um, Christian flourishing in different areas. So it was uh, I'm trying to remember. It was science and medicine, uh, economics, sort of politics and civic life, and higher education. Uh, so that was kind of that was a really fun series to do. Uh, and then we've, we've done, we've occasionally done people. One of my first people issues was uh, on Charlemagne, um, <laughs> about whom I knew practically nothing before we started, uh, just other than, he, other than that he was incredibly important. Uh, we did, a, we did this issue on C.S. Lewis. Um, we've, we did uh, this series for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so one of those focused on Luther, one of those on Calvin. You know, so just all over the place. We've got one coming out um, in a little while on Lilius Trotter, who is a, very little known figure who was a uh, an artist in uh, the late 19th century who was a student of John Ruskin's and then uh, went out to North Africa, speaking of North Africa, went out to North Africa as a missionary. Uh, and she knew like George MacDonald and Amy Carmichael and you know, like all the, all the great lights of the, of the, you know, so that's going to be really interesting to do. And we're working with the Lily Strider legacy so we can use her art, which is fantastic. So, so yeah, just very varied topics. And I guess this is going to be so hard to kind of whittle down, but what do you think is the most interesting thing or the most surprising thing that you've learned about Christian history? Not not the magazine, about Christian history right. generally. Well, I think one thing, and I mean, this comes both out of you know my, my, my doctoral work, but also out of working on the magazine, is that nearly everything is more complicated than you think it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, so, you know, the areas in which I studied extensively for my PhD, I'm, I'm an Americanist, which means I... I, I studying American religion, but that was also long ago now, and I've done so much stuff for Christian history, I don't really think about that anymore. But, uh, you know, though, like, like I knew, but when I got into doing this with the magazine, it's like I knew that American church history was more complicated than people said, because I'd just spent, you know, three years studying this and writing mm-hmm. about it. But I think the most important thing is that the fact that it's complicated does not, is not, is not a bad thing for faith. I think a lot of people think that if you 
look into church history and you see the humanity of you know great leaders and writers and theologians and and you see complex causes for things that that somehow you know leaves god out of it you know leaves the holy spirit out of it that you have to have you know all villains and all heroes and one of the things that i've been very interested in conveying with the magazine and very personally committed to is this idea that just that just because something is complicated does not mean the Holy Spirit is not at work, <laughs> um, and that it is that God is very big, and that learning more about what really happened is never going to hurt. Um, it will always help. It will always ultimately strengthen our faith. Uh, so that isn't a specific you know fact or or person or incident, but it's something that I've become more and more sort of convinced and convicted of over the last decade is that you know Christian history is complicated, and that's okay. And you won't lose your faith in Jesus if you go study it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess on that note, what, I mean, what would you say to someone that suggests that perhaps historical study is just for the academics, just for, I guess, for want of a better word, the geeks, um, and it's maybe not so important for the average person on the street and and not the average Christian? What would you What would you say to someone who thinks well, that? What I, what I ha- have generally said in the past is that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, and um, I had a. a a, a mentor, a priest, uh, as I was sort of coming up in the process, who who said once, every mistake that can be made in the church has been made and Jesus Christ is still worshipped. <laughs> and so I think by looking at what our brothers and sisters in Christ did in the past, you know, what happened to them, what they did, what problems came to them, how they solved them, did the solutions work, did the solutions not work, um, you know, that, that can only help, you know, as we go forward and look to the future. It, it's not a... a it's not like it's just all sort of names and dates and obscure details. You know, these were people. They wanted to follow Christ. They did things to try to follow Christ. You know, Christ was active in their lives. And and if we look at it like that, like a conversation, um, you know, like what is it? G.K. Chesterton said that tradition is the democracy of the dead. You know, mm-hmm. there's just a few of us walking around now, but there are so many people throughout history who have who have been part of the Christian church. And if we look at history as a conversation with them, just as if we were sitting down in our local parish to have a meeting, um, it becomes not sort of a geek pursuit, but it becomes a way to, you know, pick these people's brains and talk to them and learn from them about, you know, how to follow Christ in our day based on what we see about how they follow Christ in their day. Well, you've definitely already touched on this, but is there anything else that you'd want to add about why it's important for us to look back rather than just be kind of chatting to our contemporaries about this sort of thing. Well, partially, I think because because of what my mentor, uh, Margaret Shanks, said that, that, you know, otherwise, you know, we could at least make new and different mistakes. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that uh, pretty much every heresy, every failed idea, every, you know, like we've we've been through those already. And if we know that, it could help us to, you know, to not just spend our time spinning our wheels and going back and, you know, like, do we need to have an argument about whether Christ is truly human and truly divine? We solved that one in the fourth century, <laughs> you know. So let's start from there. You know, let's not, you know, let's not go back and sort of fight that one out over again. Um, you know, and just, I mean, I think in general, you know, humans like things that are new and shiny and, you know, sometimes I have to be reminded that, you know, whether it's like, you know, old toasters, you know, or old <laughs> theology, that those sorts of things, um, you know, still have something for us 
today. You know, they, they were made well, they've served the test of time, that kind of thing. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Let's just talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about the history of Jennifer Woodruff Tate. I mean, what was your experience of God growing up? Did you grow up in a Christian household? Yeah, I did. My uh, my father, who is uh, deceased now, was a United Methodist pastor. And uh, my mother was uh, from a long line of Methodists. Um, my grandfather was the pre- third president of Asbury Theological Seminary, which is a theological school. I guess you might <laughs> say a theological college, uh, you know, yeah. here um here in the States. So it was a very, you know, permeated by, you know, faith and discipleship and church and church activities and, you know, discussing those sorts of things in the home. And so um, I have a friend who used to say when people say, well, when did you come to know Jesus Christ? He's like, <laughs> well, when did I come to know my parents? Uh, and I, I feel the same way. It, it, was, it wasn't like, there wasn't like, a blinding moment. I was raised right. in this atmosphere where from the earliest age I was encouraged to regard Christ as my savior and my friend, so I always have. Uh, so uh, I grew up, went to, and I, I, from about the time I was 16, uh, thought that I would probably become a pastor like my dad. Um, I went to, uh, went, went to college and, and to, to, you, you know, to university, you would say, and then to the to seminary. And became a United Methodist pastor, and I did that for a few years. And then, um, for a combination of reasons, I ended up finding myself in, of all things, library school. Uh, the <laughs> only time that I have ever, ever, I mean, I feel many times that God has guided me, but the only time I feel like I audibly heard the voice of God was telling me to go to library school, which well, is just a very strange story. But I went, and I am a, a trained librarian. And then when when I went to get my PhD, I supported myself by working uh, working in a library, and um, and then I thought, well, I'll you know I'll go and I'll be a, a, a theological librarian or else a, um, a a professor, you know, with a lot of you know aptitude for research. You know, got my PhD, was actually working uh, for several years in a library in New Jersey uh, that had a special collections and archives, and um, and then uh, my husband was also was and is also an academic, and so he got the chance to get a job that was a lot closer to my parents. We moved from New Jersey to Indiana, which is a really, really, really long way. <laughs> and uh, and then I was just sort of sitting at home, not doing anything with a new baby. Uh, my, my oldest kid, who was now 16, um, had just been bored. And I started teaching online and uh, for various schools, including my alma mater, and did a little bit of that, and I, I enjoyed that. And this was like this was like nineteen, no, two thousand and five. So it's not like now when everything is online at the drop of a hat, yeah. especially after after the pandemic. Yeah, it was you know it was like we had to go to special training and learn how to set up these classes so they could be asynchronous and people didn't have to talk to each other because there was like if you wanted to talk to you had to like go and get an office and register to use the Skype and you know it, it was it was a whole different world. Uh, but so it was mostly like through chatting and stuff. Um, and having people turn in papers and responding. I taught for a few years, and, and all this time, uh, from the time I was at Duke, which is where I got my PhD, I, I had been writing, as I said before, for Christian history. And so as as the teaching was sort of getting more and more overwhelming, like I'm really, this is not really, you know, kind of where my best gifts are. Teaching at, was the same moment where 
my friend Chris Armstrong was saying, well, you know, I'm doing this Christian history thing that that now has come back to Christian History Institute, but I really can't do it at this level anymore. And, uh, you know, and, and everything sort of converged on this moment where Chris said, well, you know, if you, you know, if you can give up teaching, I think Christian history can pay you enough to, mm-hmm. you know, to replace that so that you can step in and take over. And that's how that's how I got where I am. Um, it's along the way. Um, so I, I did, as I said, Book of Me and I this pastor. Well, I uh, well, not actually. Well, while I was at Duke. In particular, I got very interested in in Anglicanism, and in 2011, I became uh, I became Episcopalian, and shortly after that, entered the ordination process in the Episcopal Church, uh, and so I was ordained a priest in 2016. And did you feel a very sort of distinct calling to ordination, or was that something that had kind of been bubbling away for a while? Kind of both. I mean, when I was like, when I was like a little like a little kid, like four, I would like write out church services. I would write out. Like orders of worship, and I would get my brother and my grandpa and all my stuffed animals, and I would like line them up and preach to them. Uh, so, and partially it's just because you know kids imitate what they see their parents doing, and that's what I saw my parents doing. Uh, but as I got older, I was like, no, this really seems to be you know a call. Um, it was I, I I it's always been a very bivocational call, and I and part of the reason I ended up in library school was as a Methodist, I had more trouble articulating that, and. The the American Methodist system is very, very much sort of like you have to be full time because otherwise, how else can we move you around and send you to all the different churches? We don't know what to do with part time people. Uh, so that was part of why that, that that didn't really work out. But as an Episcopalian, I've been more free to do things where, you know, I have a church now. I go to Sundays a month. I preach. I celebrate the Eucharist. I do certain other things since the pandemic. We get have meetings on Zoom, you know, so I'm <laughs> able to participate in various ways with them there. Uh, while also, you know, editing the magazine. But it, it, it was it was a distinct call to do something that had to do with the Eucharist, I would say. And then as I got older and discerned more, you know, and then ended up where I've ended up. And do you think your experience of being a woman in ordination, in history and theology, and, and some of the other careers that you've mentioned, you know, library, do you feel like you've been treated differently as a woman or or has it been, you know, much the same as your sort of male counterparts, colleagues, do you think? Sometimes I ha- I have been treated differently. Um, I particularly, um, I- I've noticed it more since becoming a priest. I've had people walk up to me when I have my collar on and I, and I, have it on, I always wear it for things like this. Um, I, don't, I don't sit around my house with my collar for not being interviewed, <laughs> but I, 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 you know, I do put on for interviews. Um, I put I put on academic conferences because one of the things that's very important to me is that my scholarship is sort of in, in submission to the church. <laughs> and I have had people walk up to me at academic conferences and say, I don't believe in women pastors. And wow. I'm like, well, I'm standing right here in front of you. I, I am a live <laughs> human being, you know. So uh, I had somebody ask me once I, I went into a shop on the way home from something. And I had my collar out of the woman was like, what what is that? And I said, well. Um, you know, I, I'm a I'm a pastor, and she said, "Do you have to go to school for that, or you're just born that way?" I st- <laughs> I still don't understand. <laughs> so, so yeah, you, you get sort of weird remarks like that. Um, you know, generally, I've I've generally been in settings where it there other than the weird remarks that people make to me, it's not overt discrimination as much as sort of smaller things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or people just kind of assuming, for example, that like everyone that's involved with something is men and they have wives that know to darn their socks or whatever, that kind of yeah. thing. So, And um, you mentioned that your grandfather was one of the principals of Asprey Theological Seminary and you're also an affiliate professor of church history there. I'm guessing it can't have escaped your notice what's been going on there recently. Um, you know, people are talking about revival. 
Do you have any thoughts about what's been going on there, Jennifer? Yeah, the revival actually was um, across the street at Asbury College, which or Asbury it University, it um, and uh, which is a separate institution. Uh, but there was a lot of collaboration. The seminary yeah. was extraordinarily supportive of you know of what was going on. Um, the I've said about the revival that. It sort of grew on me because the 1970s revival, uh, which was very, that what happened there, which was very different. My, my aunt, who was a student there, had sort of a bad experience uh, where she felt like she was forced to testify and things like that. So so at first it was like, oh, oh, oh my goodness, it's, this is happening again. But the longer yeah. it went on and I saw how how central prayer was and how central the student leadership was and how sensitive the administration um, at Asbury University was to what was going on, I, I, I really really sort of won me over. I did not get a chance to go over. My husband did uh, very briefly. And by the time he got over there, it was the point where he had to wait in line to get into, mm-hmm. actually get into Esbury University's uh, uh, chapel. But he uh, he went uh, across the street to the seminary and they had a live streaming thing set up in there. Mm-hmm. You know, and he spent some time, uh, some time there. And it was just, it became very interesting to me to see something that was so familiar to me because, you know, I went to school at the seminary. <laughs> I, I grew up in and out of Walmart. Uh, you know, and suddenly it was like, at first it was like, it was like local news and then it was like the state of Kentucky news and then it was like national yeah. news and then it was international yeah. news and it was all happening like, you know, down the street, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and just that in the middle of all of that, everyone really sort of kept their head screwed on straight and kept the focus on God. <laughs> And that became very, very impressive to me that, um, you know, they were welcoming. They, you know, until it finally got to the point where this is a town of 4,000 people and 50,000 people showed up at one weekend. And, they, you know, they said, you know, we have to, yeah. you know, for, for, for everyone's good, we have to do something different. But uh, it, it was like they, you know, they would come be a part of this experience, this, but this is basically for the students and led by the students. You know, and God is working among these students, and we're just going to honor that. And, and you know, in the in the end, it, I, I thought it was very, very moving, very impressive. And you're obviously the managing editor of Christian History magazine, uh, and we've talked about the importance of kind of looking back to to learn from the past. I mean, do you think revival is one of those areas where it is helpful to look back and learn for kind of how we go forwards? Yeah, and it's actually very funny you ask that question because we're doing a series on revivals, which we um, had planned before this happened. Um, okay, but the first one is going to be, um, I guess, late the the very last issue this year. Um, and, and so, yes, we had actually already in, quite independently come to the conclusion that it was about time that we did that. And we're going to start with um, the Middle Ages and talk about sort of reform and renewal in the medieval church. And then we're going to come up, sort of come up through. I mean, we have this series on the Reformation, so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about revival. We're going to say, you know, go read these these five issues <laughs> that we've done. Um, and then we're going to come up through pietism in Dizendorf and the Wesleys and, and and talk about that. And then we're going to end up with a sort of 19th and 20th century uh, issue. Uh, but but yes, I think that one of the things that impressed me about the Asbury revival was there were so many parallels, not just with uh, the 1970s or with uh, the 1800s, but with medieval revival and pilgrimage. The idea that this was not just a, a place of renewal, but that became essentially a pilgrimage shrine. And people were traveling, you know, from all over the country and all over the world to to make a pilgrimage to to the same place that's like down the street uh you know it, it was it, that I, I said that is that was so medieval and it is such a thing where it, we're understanding the way this function in the middle ages would really help sort of understand and process what was going on now so i, I 
I'm actually very excited in the after the Asbury revival about the fact that we had already agreed to do these issues because I think it's going to be doubly fascinating to people because that's on their mind. Jennifer, we're nearly finished, but I feel like I have to ask you about your second degree brown belt in karate. I mean, is that something you've always practiced? How do you do that alongside everything else you're doing? I've got so many questions about that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but when, uh, when I was, uh, I'm 51, and uh, when I was 46, uh, my oldest kid uh, started um, started taking karate. I mean, it was a thing that was offered in the area. And uh, they took karate six months a year or something like that. And then uh, one day they, I said, well, they, I mean, there were adults in the class. It was like a... And I thought, well, I'll go try it. And so you know, we all get lined up there. When they when they have new white belts, they'll, they'll do a lot of... Let's just do a lot of kicks and punches. So they lined everybody up and they're like, okay, punch. What the heck? I was like, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, so I just uh, stuck with it, and eventually my oldest kid dropped out. Uh, but I, I was doing it, my husband was doing it, and then my, my, my younger uh, child was doing it. Uh, so, and it's just, you know, as somebody who was not athletic and not involved in things like that at all, I have to say that when I tested for my yellow belt, which is the first rank of belts as you move up, it was more stressful than my doctoral dissertation. Uh, because, <laughs> I, I mean, my doctoral dissertation uh, defense was very stressful. But it's like, ultimately, it was about my brain, and I know I can brain. I don't know that I can kick. You know, and it's like, I have to get up in front of these people and remember how to kick and punch in the right, correct way, and this is so outside of my comfort zone. Uh, but I've kept doing it precisely because it's outside of my comfort zone. You know, and even now, to you know, to, we're getting, I'm getting into a range where learning the things that I need to learn is, is really, so, and the balance and the agility and that sort of thing, you know, is really somewhat difficult, but I, I keep trying to persevere. I'm determined to become a black belt. I may be 55 or 60, but I'm going to do it. Wow. That's brilliant. And Jennifer, we're going to be speaking in, uh, in on another podcast, on the C.S. Lewis podcast, about this special issue that you've done on C.S. Lewis. But as we finish this episode, is there anything that you would go back and tell your, I guess, kind of teenage self, um, learning everything that you've learned along the years, all the different careers that you've had, the ordination, is there anything that you kind of go back and 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 tell, let's say, 15-year-old Jennifer um, with all the wisdom that you've kind of learned along the way? I think I would say what I sometimes say to my kids, which is, you hold on, it gets better later. Um, I think <laughs> that particularly, you know, when you are, you know, a geeky kid, as I was, um, you know, and, and you're in the America, what the Americans would call a public school, you know, the state schools, you know, and, and that sort of thing, you know, you, you, you're just sort of like, you know, wow, I'm, I'm kind of not really with the program, but, but the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to do things that I really enjoyed, um, you know, the more, the more, you know, I met my husband and that's been not only, you know, a wonderful marriage, but incredibly fruitful intellectual partnership because he, he worked with a magazine and, you know, I had kids, I've gotten to travel, I've gotten to write, you know, I've gotten to preach, I've gotten to do all those things I kind of wanted to do and didn't know how, you know, and, and you know, and I write for a living. And when I was 15 years old, that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't think it was possible. So, you know, it'd be like, you know, hold on, it's, it's coming, it's going to be fine. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's so great to be here. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Oh, 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 oh
You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.